Well, good morning. It's good to be with you this morning. As you might have figured out, I am not Mike. If you're looking at your uh, bulletin, you might see that uh, he's scheduled to preach today, but he texted me last night at like 11 o'clock at night and said he was so busy celebrating Clemson's win, they didn't have time to come in this morning. <laughs> so, should I tell you the truth? His... his um, his plane was delayed or canceled in uh, Mississippi, and so I'm assuming he'll be back here sometime today, but not in time for the sermon. So he asked me to um, to preach for him. So this is a different passage than what's printed. We're going to actually look at Acts chapter eight, uh, Acts chapter 14, verses eight through 18. And yes, that is actually on the screen. So it's page 100, uh, 1116. If you're following along in the Bibles. In front of you. Hear now the word of the Lord. Now at Lystra there was a man sitting who could not use his feet. He was crippled from birth and had never walked. He listened to Paul's speaking. And Paul, looking intently at him and seeing that he had faith to be made well, said in a loud voice, Stand upright on your feet. And he sprang up and began walking. And when the crowd saw what Paul had done, they lifted up their voices, saying in Lyconian, The gods have come down to us in the likeness of men. Barnabas they called Zeus, and Paul Hermes, because he was the chief speaker. And the priest of Zeus, whose temple was at the entrance to the city, brought oxen and garlands to the gates and wanted to offer sacrifice with the crowds. But when the apostles Barnabas and Paul heard of it, they tore their garments and rushed out to the crowd, crying out, Men, why are you doing these things? We are also men of nature with you, of like nature with you. And we bring you good news, that you should turn from these vain things to a living God, who made the heaven and the earth and the seas and all that is in them. In the past generations, he allowed all the nations to walk their own ways. Yet he did not leave himself without a witness, for he did good by giving you rains from heaven and fruitful seasons, satisfying your hearts with food and gladness. And even with these words, they scarcely restrained the people from offering sacrifices to them. When I was in college, I had to take a class on cultural anthropology. It was a really fun class. I really enjoyed it. One of the books I had to read in the class was an ethnography called The Forest People, and it was about the Mbuti tribe, uh, which was a tribe of pygmies in the forests of the Congo. And uh, these anthropologists went to this tribe to study them and understand them. And one interesting thing about this is that because they spent their entire life in the forest, they never were able to see more than 20 or 30 feet away. They've never had the opportunity to be out in a clearing or out in a field where they could see long distances. And so they spent their entire time in these in these um, forests. But the anthropologists brought one of these men out of the forest into the wide open plains. I think they were, if I remember correctly, they were on their way to a compound and they got a chance to take him out to see the prairie, these, this open grasslands. And the, the Mbuti tribe man, he, he looks out in the distance and he sees an antelope, but he says to the two anthropologists, look, a bug. 
And they, uh, the anthropologists are puzzled by this. They look and say, no, that's, a, that's an antelope. No, antelopes are big and bugs are small. That's small. That's a bug. And he would not believe them when they told him that it was an antelope. And so they're driving closer and closer to this thing. And before his eyes, this little bug is transformed into an antelope. And he is freaking out. Now, the issue here, of course, wasn't so much that he didn't have the ability to see. And it wasn't his intelligence or anything like that. It had to do with his background. With his, he had never been in a situation where he had to see farther than 20 or 30 feet away. So his, his brain had never had to process that things seem smaller when they're far away. And so he totally misunderstood the situation that he was seeing. And despite what the anthropologists were telling him about the antelope, all he could see was a bug. And that is the problem in this passage. Paul was talking about antelopes with these people in Lystra. But all they were seeing was bugs. We interpret everything we see and what we hear from others in light of what we see already, what we already believe, the worldview that we already have, the culture that we already have, the experiences that we already have. And we may be proclaiming the truth, but it's human nature to mix the truth with our own backgrounds and even with our own idols. And so this passage really speaks to us of the necessity of the incarnation, the importance of the incarnation when it comes to to ministry. We do not have a God who speaks to us from afar. We have a God who came to us as a man, who spoke our language, who entered into our world, who became a part of our experiences to redeem us and to renew us and to bring us to himself. And then he calls us to live in the world in the same way that he came to live among us. In many ways, this passage describes a short-term mission trip gone bad. This is not what you want to have happen on a short-term mission trip. Where they, Paul and Barnabas, they go to a town called Lystra, which is in central Turkey, and they preach the gospel. And while they're preaching, they see a man who, Paul says, yeah, he believes. And so, He heals them. And at that moment, everything changes, and for the worse. The people of Lystra start speaking in in the Lyconian language. Greek was probably just their trade language. Their actual language that they spoke amongst themselves was Lyconian. And they start saying, the gods have come to us in human form. Well, Paul and Barnabas don't understand this. They don't speak Lyconian. They only... They speak Greek, and so they don't understand what's going on around them. And they, they conclude that Paul was Hermes because he's the speaker, and they conclude that Barnabas is Zeus because, well, I guess he's the strong and silent type. But the priest of Zeus learns about this, and he comes out and begins to prepare a sacrifice, and the whole town is beginning to pre- prepare this sacrifice before Paul and Barnabas realize what's going on. And it took all their efforts to get them to stop sacrificing to them as gods. The very thing they did not want to have happen was to reinforce their pagan beliefs. And so why is this? 
Why would it be that they would come and preach the gospel? And we assume preach the gospel clearly. The words of Paul's sermon are not included here, but we would assume that Paul was preaching the gospel clearly for them to understand. And yet, why this reaction? Well, there's a fascinating local myth that was circulating around this time, and you can actually read about it today if you want in Ovid's Metamorphoses. And it's a story set in this area, in the area around Lystra, where Zeus and Hermes apparently had come to look for a good place to have a temple built for Zeus. And they went around to the local villages and they visited 1,000 people. And all 1,000 people saw Zeus and Hermes in human form and refused hospitality to them. It wasn't until they came across the home of a poor family, Bacchus and Philemon were their names. Once they found that home, they, they were poor. They didn't have enough food for them to eat. But they said, no, come in, stay with us and we'll feed you. But we just we don't have enough food. And so they feed them what they have, and because they're gods, they uh, allow the food to get replenished during the meal. And this, of course, freaks out Bacchus and Philemon, and then they they realize that they're actually serving gods. And so they become the first priests of Zeus in the area, and the, the rest of the village is destroyed. This was the story that was the backdrop of what happened when Paul came to Lystra. And with this in mind, I think we can understand a little bit about what was going on. Zeus and Hermes, they thought, were in their midst because they were already pagans. They already believed in Zeus and Hermes. They didn't know anything about Jesus and they didn't know anything about Yahweh. But they did believe in Zeus and Hermes. And they see these people that remind them of what it must have been like when Zeus and Hermes in their minds had come before. And so they say, this must be Zeus and Hermes. And we don't want to get torched. And so we better offer sacrifices to them. Because if we don't, it could go very poorly for us. And so they bring together these sacrifices to offer to Zeus so that they won't get torched. And what's amazing to me is that even though they were right there listening to Paul preach, they turned the gospel upside down. It's the, it's the exact opposite of the gospel, what they were believing. Because when Zeus and Hermes came, they were looking for faithful people. And those that didn't measure up got torched. And the few, the two, that were faithful got to be rewarded. And that was the mentality that they came from when they heard Paul preaching. The gospel turned upside down because the real gospel, the gospel that Paul was preaching, says that God comes to those who are unfaithful and he rewards those who are unfaithful because we don't have to offer sacrifices to God to gain his approval. He sent his son as a sacrifice for us. That we can be forgiven even though we don't deserve it. Even though There's nothing we can do to earn it and find forgiveness, find redemption and find fellowship with the one and true God because of what he has done through his son, Jesus Christ. And isn't it amazing the ability that we have 
to turn the gospel upside down. When the gospel is telling us about antelopes and we hear and see bugs. We do it all the time. It's not just the people of Lystra. It's us as well. We mix the message of the gospel with our own idols. And then we turn it upside down. So it becomes something that the gospel really isn't. My favorite idol, if I can call it that, is people's approval. You can get me to do just about anything you want if it will be something that will allow people to think that I am worthwhile and good and worthy of respect. So when I got this phone call at 11 o'clock or a text at 11 o'clock at night, part of me is thinking, dang it, i got to prepare a sermon at 11 o'clock at night. But the other part of me is thinking, all right, what can I do about this? How can I get people to respect me more because of what I'm doing this morning? And I have to fight this every day of my life because my main goal ought to be to understand what is this passage about and how do I need to change and how does our church need to change? How does our church need to be different as a result of this passage? Not what, how can I use it for my benefit? But that's the idol that I have. And it's something that has affected me my entire ministry. To want to minister in such a way that I gain the respect and honor and value from others when I already have it in Christ. Jesus already gives me what I'm looking for. I already have it in Christ. So why do I seek for it in other people? And this is something that's been a reality in my life for as long as I remember. I remember when I graduated college, my first job was I worked as a geologist. And uh, my job was to go around and uh, I tested petroleum-contaminated soil and I did other kinds of things to clean up messes made by the petroleum industry, if you will. And so what I did is, uh, is I had this job I had to go to every week and I would go to a, a, um, uh, a property in Baltimore City that had uh, groundwater that was contaminated with diesel fuel. And we were just monitoring it until the court cases were all settled, but they just needed, the Maryland Department of the Environment wanted to know what was going on on the property. So I would go once a week and I would test the thickness of the diesel fuel on the top of the groundwater in the five monitoring wells that I had, that I had drilled there. And, uh, and it was a really cool little, little t- instrument that I was able to use because it had, was a tape measure with a little sensor on the end of it and you drop it down into the well and when the, the sensor hit the, um, the diesel fuel, it would start beeping. And then when it sunk through the diesel fuel and into the water, it would stop beeping. So you could measure the thickness of the diesel fuel on top of the water, on the, on top of the water table simply by using this instrument. It was a wonderful instrument. It worked really great when I remember it. But this particular morning, I forgot to bring it with me. And it was 45 minutes to get back to the office, and I had to go home from where I was, and I didn't have time to go back and get it. So I just used a regular tape measure and measured the distance to the water table and guessed at the thickness of the diesel fuel and went home. And that night, I felt horrible about doing this because what that means is I would end up sending falsified data to the Maryland Department of the Environment, which is something I want to do. And all night long, I feel guiltier and guiltier and guiltier about what I was doing. And so the next morning, I go in and I tell my boss 
what I'd done. And he said, don't worry about it. We'll just make a note that you didn't have the right equipment and we'll just do it next week. And that was a big relief. But for the following weeks, it still tortured me that somebody knew I wasn't perfect. That somebody knew that I was capable of doing something dishonest. And it took me weeks to get over that. The actual mistake, not that big a deal. I got it fixed. (laughs) What it did to how I conceived of people's thoughts about me took weeks to overcome. And it's all because it's so easy for me to turn the gospel upside down. To refuse to accept what I already have in Christ and then try to gain it from others. When we don't turn the gospel upside down, it gives us freedom, which is what Paul was proclaiming to the people of Lystra. Don't worry about offering sacrifices to these gods. It's worthless. It won't do you any good. God gives you blessings regardless because he loves his people. I'm convinced today that idolatry is rooted in fears and in our perceived needs. It's not like the people of Lystra or the people of the Old Testament decided to worship idols because of good and rational arguments for their existence. That's not the reason why people serve and worship idols. People want children. And if you don't believe that Yahweh is providing you with a child and Asherah is promising to give you one, maybe if you worship Asherah, you will get what you want. You want your crops to grow so you can feed your family. And if your crops aren't growing the way that you want them to grow, then maybe if you sacrifice to Baal, maybe he'll do for you what Yahweh can't. Our allegiance to God is always conditional. We serve him when it suits our purposes. And when it doesn't seem like God is giving us what we want or what we feel like we need, then we turn elsewhere. But the real gospel undoes this. Because the beauty of the gospel is that we don't have to come to him. He comes to us. In the Garden of Eden, when Adam and Eve sinned, God came to them. And yes, he judged them. But he also gave them a promise that Christ would crush the heel of Satan. In the Tower of Babel, people gathered together to try to build a tower to God. And God confused them because they were trying to make it to him. And in the very next chapter, God came to Abram, chose him, probably a pagan at the time, and chose to make him into a great nation. God chose Jacob, the deceiver, the trickster. And despite all of his attempts to try to get his own way through deceitfulness, through trickery, none of those worked. But God came to him and wrestled him and renamed him Israel. 
and form the nation of Israel from him. And God comes to us in the person of Jesus Christ with a real gospel that we so easily turn upside down. But the real gospel not only transforms us, the real gospel also allows us to become a transforming influence in the world around us. It is this gospel that becomes the model for mission. Because God came to us. He spoke our language. He entered our world. He took upon himself our experiences so that we could be redeemed and be brought into his kingdom. He comes to us by his spirit and reveals our idols so that we can be freed from them to worship the living and true God. But then we are moved and encouraged to enter into this world with the same mindset that Jesus had when he came to us. That the incarnation is not just something that Jesus did to save us. It's also a model for ministry, for the way that we can enter into the world with the love of the gospel in a way that can bring real and genuine transformation in the world around us. This passage, at least by contrast, highlights for us what the ministry of the church looks like when the incarnation is a model for ministry. Because when Paul preached the gospel here, it's really fascinating. We're not told what the words are that Paul spoke. It just says that he was preaching, he sees a guy that believes, and healed him. It doesn't say what the content of the message was. But we we can guess what it was, not just from previous sermons that Paul preached, but also from the reaction of the crowds. Because the the people say, when they're listening to him, they do they say one thing and do something else. They say, the gods have come to us in human form. And that's an interesting way to phrase it. Because Paul probably said something about God coming to us in the form of a person, Jesus Christ. And then they say, or they start to offer sacrifices. And that's interesting as well, because certainly Paul said something to the effect of Jesus offering himself as a sacrifice. And of course, Lyconian is their first language and Greek is their second language. We don't know how much they understood of what was being said. And, but certainly, whether it's a problem of them not understanding Paul's words or whether it was simply a problem of them interpreting Paul's words in light of their previously held beliefs, what happens is, is just the reality that they completely misunderstood the intent of what Paul was trying to communicate. Through no fault of Paul's, it was because of the worldview that they had when they listened to him speak. So when Paul says, God has come to us in human form. They hear the gods have come to us in human form. Ooh, look, there they are. They just healed a guy. And when they, when he says Jesus offered himself as, as a sacrifice, they say, hey, we should offer sacrifices. <laughs> and they, and they totally misrepresent in their own minds what Paul was trying to communicate. Peter Berger is a sociologist who describes has a term for this. He calls it climates of plausibility or plausibility structures. And the idea is this, and it's a reality that we all face. It's the same reality that it was faced by the, the pygmy and booty uh, tribesmen who looked at a antelope and thought it was a bug. We all interpret the world around us in light of perceptions that we've already had, our backgrounds, our culture, our experiences, um, our education levels, all these kinds of things have an impact on how we interpret the world around us. And things seem either plausible or implausible, 
not so much on the basis of whether or not they're true, but on the basis of how well they fit into what we already have in our minds, the structures of our worldview, if you will. And so the problem with this Embudi tribesman wasn't that he was deficient in any way. He simply didn't have the experiences to properly interpret what he was looking at. The problem here with, with these people in Lystra wasn't so much that they were deficient in any way. It was just they were, their worldview was so polytheistic, it took more than however long Paul's sermon was to overcome it. And the same is true for us. So many times when we try to communicate, we find that we are not understanding what others are saying, or we find that we think we're communicating just fine, but the other person seems for some reason to understand something totally differently than what we understand. I remember my boss used to say this all the time, my boss when, when I worked as a geologist. People keep misunderstanding about people keep misunderstanding me. It's not my fault. But everyone always misunderstands me. <laughs> and I'm you know, I work for them. So it's not like I'm the guy that can say, well maybe if everyone misunderstands you, it's you're the one that's the problem. But this is the problem that we have in all of our relationships. We have these climates of plausibility that makes that cause certain things to make more sense to us than others. And we accept things and reject things, not so much because they're true, but because they fit into what we already believe. And we already know this in our in our conflicts. I mean, how many of us, when we have a fight with our husband or our wife or our children or our parents, how many of us are thinking in the middle of the conflict, you know, he really understands me really well right now. He really gets me. How often is it, does, that, does that ever happen in a conflict? That we say that person really understands what's going on. No, the conflict illustrates and brings to the surface the fact that to, to a large extent, we really don't understand people. Even the people that we are closest to. We really do not understand them. And that means we have to work so much harder to be understood. And if that's true of our husbands and our wives and our children and our parents, how much more true is it of the secular world around us that only hears about us from movies and things like that? If they don't darken the door of a church, what do they think about us? And what do we say? And how do they interpret what we say? And we can think that we're talking about antelopes. We can think that we're talking about the gospel. But it could very well be that as much as we're talking about antelopes, they're hearing bugs. It could very well be that what we think is so clear in our own minds is not clear to them. And that requires us to stop and to listen. Let me suggest to you that the church today is very poor at this. I'm not talking about this particular church, but the church, the evangelical church at large, is very poor at this. We're very poor at thinking about how can I listen well to the culture around me so that when I speak, I speak well. And when I'm talking about an antelope, they're hearing about an antelope and not hearing about a book. We're terrible at that. And there's proof of it, all we have to do is ask unbelievers around us, what do you think of the church? What's the church all about? I can almost guarantee you, you're going to hear about our political views and about our moral stances. And maybe something about Jesus will be thrown in there. But they won't articulate the gospel. 
even if they darken the door of a church. We have to work overtime to communicate because we are all affected by our own backgrounds, our own agendas, our own assumptions. And assumptions are the termites of relationships. And we're not, when we're not aware of them, and when we allow our own agendas to run roughshod over the people that we have conversations with, the more it's going to be true that we're talking about antelopes and they're just hearing bugs. Because we have to stop and we have to listen so that we can understand and make sure that what we're talking about is what they're hearing. I remember a friend of mine when I was, uh, well, this is maybe 10 years or so ago when I was in Maryland. There was a friend of mine who was, she was in her 20s and uh, she she wanted to meet with me because she wasn't sure she was a Christian. Her family was Christian, but she wasn't sure she was. And so she wanted to meet with me and ask me questions to see if she was a Christian. And so I asked her a question. I said, do you believe in the resurrection? Do you believe that Jesus rose again from the dead? And she said, well, if I believe that, I have to believe in the death penalty. And my mind was kind of blown by that. What? <laughs> what? I don't see the connection. Well, there's an internal logical connection in her mind that I was missing entirely. And so, in, and so I started thinking about what, it, what could it be that would cause somebody to say, uh, if I believe that Jesus rose again from the dead, I have to believe in the death penalty. And I got to think, oh, because Jesus took the death penalty upon himself. That's what it is. So I asked her about that. She says, no, that's not it. Now, she's, she says, no, what it is is basically if I be- believe the gospel as evangelicals believe that gospel, then I have to buy into all the political stuff that uh, I basically have to be a conservative politically. And she didn't want to become a conservative politically, so she thought that she probably shouldn't become an evangelical. And... And so that was just, it just blew my mind that she made that connection. And so the conversation then became me having the opportunity now to separate the bug from the antelope, so to speak, and say, no, your political beliefs can be held independently of your belief in Christ. And you can believe that Jesus rose again from the dead without necessarily having to be a conservative politically. And, and, and it was just amazing to me to hear, to see kind of the light open up in her mind that those two things don't necessarily have to go together. I mean, and she also said, you know, you keep talking about heaven, but I don't care about heaven. What do you mean? I said, well, I have a hard enough time making it through this life. Why do I care about what's going to happen in the next one? And it's like, you telling me about me getting, getting to go to heaven when I die, that doesn't do me any good whatsoever. I can't get through the next week. <laughs> and, and so all of these assumptions that I would have coming to the conversation with her were not the ones that were meeting the needs that she had. I wasn't addressing the needs that she had. It was only when I finally stopped and said, all right, well, well, what do you believe and why? <laughs> that we were finally able to separate the, the antelope from the, from the bug, so to speak, and we were able to get at what the gospel is really all about. And this is what is required, but this is what makes ministry kind of messy too. Because when we live this way, when we have real conversations in the midst of real relationships, then we're not just asking other people to share their idols, we're sharing our own. And, and we are uncovering layers of 
of uh, miscommunication and idolatry in our own lives. Because now we're in the midst of a real relationship with another person in which, as Paul says, we, we, gave, we give to each other not just the gospel of God, but our lives as well, because they're so dear to us. But there are so many assumptions that we as evangelicals have. Some of them um, are false. And some people have false assumptions about who we are as evangelicals. And some people have assumptions about us that are based on uh, what a few evangelicals say or what their past experiences were with the church. It may not have to do anything with us in particular. But if we don't give people the opportunity to share... And if we don't listen, then we can have no confidence that when we speak, we are letting them hear about antelopes and not bugs. And it's the incarnation that's the model for us to follow, to break through the layers of miscommunication. That we assume the burden of communication, that just like Jesus came to us, didn't force us to come to him. He came to us and spoke our language and lived in our world. And so we don't force others to come to him. We go to them and enter into their world to speak their language, understand their agendas, understand their assumptions, and understand our own as well so that we can lay them aside for the sake of the gospel, the real gospel not the ones we like to turn upside down. This is how the gospel becomes incarnate in communities. This is how Central Florida will change. Through his people loving, loving Central Florida, loving people enough to give up on our agendas and to share Christ out of love Because it's not enough to talk gospel truths. We need to give our lives to this lost and broken world. So let me encourage you this week. We're heading into the Advent season. To think about the incarnation. Think about your relationships. First, your relationship with God. What are the ways in which you, like me, are tempted to turn the gospel upside down? When Jesus is preaching to you about antelopes, you see bugs. Because we take the gospel about God coming to us and turn it into something about us having to perform to earn our forgiveness. And second, let me ask you to think about your relationships with others in your family, and in the community around you, at work? What are the agendas that you have? What are the assumptions that you bring to conversations? What are ways that you could listen better to those around you, to those you love? And how might you speak more articulately about what the gospel really is to ensure that when we're talking about the gospel, they're not hearing bugs.
Whenever we think this way, we're putting into practice the philosophy of ministry that Jesus put into practice when he became a man to live among us and live in our world to bring, to bring redemption to us. When we model it, we can also bring agents of redemption in the world around us because we can love the world by God's spirit with the same love that he had for us when he became incarnate. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word. And we thank you for this crazy mixed up thing that happened in in Lystra. The short-term mission trip that just didn't go the way that Paul wanted it to go. And yet you used it for your glory. And we pray, Father, that you would also use us, crazy mixed up people. And so affected by sin, with such a propensity to turn the gospel even into something that feeds our idolatry. We pray that you would break through that in our lives to transform us, that we might be your agents by your grace to see Central Florida transformed through the power of the gospel. For it's in the name of your Son, Jesus Christ, we pray. Amen.